This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. Politics of the United States for the people of the United States. Hello. Again, I'm Josh King, sitting in the A-chair today for Adam Belmar, who's off this week. Today, we're going into the Situation Room at the White House with the National Security Advisor to the Vice President of the United States, Tony Blinken. He was one of only a dozen people pictured in that now-famous Pete Souza shot with President Obama on that historic Sunday when operatives assaulted the compound of Osama bin Laden. Tony's been a fixture on the Washington national security scene, both at the White House and in Congress. And we'll hear from him the perspectives born from that front row over the years. Then, switching gears, we'll focus our attention north to New York, specifically the New York Times, and one of the hottest young reporters working for the paper they call The Gray Lady. Reporter Brian Stelter will join us. And if there's one journalist whose work is helping to turn The Gray Lady into a platform for the digital age, it's Brian. All of 25 years old, who's actually a seasoned veteran in the field of media reporting. He started writing an anonymous blog called TV Newser while in college that became a must-read at every network and cable channel. He's gone from obscurity to mainstream, and this summer his name will become household, at least to the art house crowd, with the release of the much-anticipated Page One, a documentary from director Andrew Rossi. But first, we welcome to this broadcast Tony Blinken. National Security Advisor to Vice President Biden. My usual disclosures here, Tony and I go back to 1988, working together in a campaign office on Chauncey Street in Boston, Massachusetts. We then worked for President Clinton together for many years, and we've remained friends. And when he left the White House the last time, he merged briefly to Washington Think Tank, but then became staff director of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, working for a certain senator, Joseph R. Biden of Delaware, who on January 20th, 2009, became the 47th vice president of the United States. And Tony's been with him every step of the way, countless foreign trips, often in war zones, and most visibly on May 1st, 2001, when White House photographer Pete Souza snapped a shot scene around the world as the vice president, president and their national security teams watched events unfold in Abbottabad, Pakistan. Tony Blinken, welcome to Polyoptics. Josh, it's great to be with you. Thanks very much. Uh, are things a little less chaotic around the West Wing these days, at least on the national security team? I wish I could say that, but, you know, we're, we're in a growth industry. Uh, every day, something new. When you think about it, just, um, just eight months ago, the Arab Spring wasn't yet the Arab Spring. And so we've been dealing with that on top of everything we're already dealing with. So it's every day is a challenge. Every day is busy. Every day is fascinating. We, um, we saw last night images that are sort of iconic in the polyoptics uh, sphere. That would be the images of a, a hotel in a Middle Eastern city, this time in, in, uh, um, in Kabul, uh, the Intercontinental. Seems a brand which seems to be a, a natural target for terrorists. And, and if anything would speak to the unsettled nature of where Afghanistan is, it would be the images that filled the TV screen of a of a hotel that Westerners frequent ablaze. Is that a place that you stayed on any of your trips? You know, I've been to Afghanistan a number of times and uh, always staying at the embassy, never at the Intercontinental, but lots of friends who stayed there, journalists, uh, others. So they know the place well, and what happened yesterday was a tragedy. 
how does news like that filter through the national security team and eventually wind up in Vice President Biden's hands? You know, we're all connected 24-7 by our computers, by our Blackberries, by our phones. So typically something like that will turn up on your computer screen, uh, a missive from the Situation Room, the folks who monitor the world 24-7 for the White House. Uh, you'll get a little Bolton, and then you'll get more details as they come in. Sometimes, though, it's uh, it's um, on your screen coming right from uh, a media source. Uh, they tend to be first on the scene uh, in many instances. Uh, and so yesterday, um, uh, when we were uh, watching uh, what was unfolding in, um, in Afghanistan, um, I think uh, we probably first got it from a media source. Um, does something like that re- require a change to your usual routine, or is that the kind of thing that unfortunately, you begin to uh, take on as another daily event in, in what's happening in the, in the war regions? You know, we, we have folks who are focused uh, 24-7 on particular issues, particular countries, uh, particular uh, places. And uh, there's an Afghanistan team, of course, uh, at the White House, just there's at the State Department, the Pentagon, and elsewhere. And so when something uh, like this happens, uh, they mobilize immediately, try and get the facts, figure out what's happened, uh, talk about how we should respond. Uh, maybe a meeting gets pulled together uh, on short notice uh, by the uh, National Security Council staff, uh, bringing in the other agencies of government. Um, and that's something that happens uh, pretty much every day because there's always, unfortunately, something happening uh, every day. So uh, let's go back to May 1st, if, you, if you're if you okay with that. Um, I, you know, we're, I'm a frequent watcher of late night television. And uh, before he retired a little while ago, Admiral Mike Mullen, the uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff joined David Letterman on his evening show, and uh, uh, I'm reading from a story. When Letterman tried to draw Mullen out on the killing of Osama bin Laden and exactly what the chairman and other officials were looking at in the Situation Room that day, the chairman demurred. At one point, Letterman, looking at the now-famous photo of the scene, pointed to Antony Blinken, National Security Advisor to the Vice President Biden, and uh, quoting Admiral Mullen, That guy's not supposed to be there, right? Letterman cracked. He's, he's not supposed to be there. He just wandered in on the tour. <laughs> I, you know, uh, a, a lot of uh, quote-unquote friends sent that to me. And, and first of all, I should say, Mike Mullen's still with us, He uh, thankfully. Uh, just this week, we had uh, Secretary Gates uh, step down. Uh, Admiral Mullen's still chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, through into the fall, um, although his successor was announced. Um, and uh, with regard to uh, Letterman, I'm not sure if it's better to be the um, unidentified butt of a joke or the identified butt uh, of a joke, uh, but it was all in good fun. And uh, yeah, sure, there are days when you feel exactly like that. What am I doing here? Um, do, I, uh, do I belong in this place? Maybe I did wander in off the White House tour. <laughs> um, can you paint a picture of, uh, of what it was like on that Sunday and... and, uh, and- what was happening on the screen, you know, you describe what you're comfortable describing, but there is, uh, there's President Obama and 12 other people, and uh, to, be, to be positioned in history as you are had to have been uh, one of the most, I don't know, memorable moments of what is, uh, from what I know, a very memorable career for you. You know, um, I can't really tell you what was on the screen uh, or go into any detail on that, but what I can tell you is this. The whole experience was uh, extraordinary, both because of the uh, the import uh, of what um, what we were doing, what we were trying to do, what we did, um, but especially because of uh, the president and watching him uh, and how he handled the situation. Keep in mind, he made this decision to go after uh, Osama bin Laden based on entirely circumstantial evidence. We never had proof positive that bin Laden was in the compound. It was all circumstantial. And he made the decision he did um, 
against uh, very different recommendations from some of his most senior advisors. And so to me, it was the most courageous uh, decision I've seen um, in government uh, since I've been involved. The stakes could not have been higher. The uncertainty could not have been greater. Uh, but he made the call. Uh, and it was decisive. It was tough. And of course, uh, it got the result. So um, it was really just inspiring to watch that, to watch the process that he went through uh, to get the de- that decision. A small group of us knew of this uh, for some time, as, and uh, the operation was planned out. Um, but, uh, you know, at best, it was a 60-40 proposition that bin Laden was actually there. And on that Sunday, uh, so many of us were going to bed, uh, and you got that rare uh, moment of, uh, of alert. Your BlackBerry starts to buzz. You see that the president is going to, go to make an address to the nation in a few minutes. And there is that need uh, from a national security communications apparatus or a White House communications apparatus to say, uh, there needs to be context here. There needs to be uh, both what the president will say in the East Room, and I sort of have been on record saying, boy, I wish he would give some of the, some more speeches in the Oval Office rather than to an empty East Room. But there also has to be uh, what Pete would create and allow it to be seen by the world, showing mm. uh, your boss and President Obama and Secretary of State and Defense and everyone else. What was the thought about how you can, how much you can show, and how you can provide context for that story that is going to play out so big late into the evening on Sunday and into the Monday morning papers. You know, it's interesting. Uh, first of all, it's fascinating to me that this photograph has become somewhat uh, iconic. Pete took dozens, uh, maybe even more, uh, shots uh, while we were in the Situation Room, and uh, that this one uh, ended up being the photo uh, release that caught on is um, there's a bit of, of alchemy there that's hard to actually uh, understand. It just it just happens. Um, and it's also interesting because um, for most of that day, we were in uh, the larger situation room right next door, or conference room. And um, because what we were watching on the video screens was put up on the screens in the smaller room uh, that was photographed, we ended up all moving into the smaller room, uh, almost piecemeal. A few folks moved in and the others followed. And so that's why you get the sense that people are kind of crowded into this small room. There's actually a much larger, as you know, Josh, a much larger conference yep. room where most of the meetings take place. And um, in a sense, it was just a, a fluke that uh, what we were watching was put up on the screens in the smaller room. And was did Pete vet around the actual shot that was going to be put out? Oh, yes. Yes. No, absolutely. In, in, in part because he wanted to make sure that there was nothing classified uh, that would be visible in the shot, or if there was something, that it would be de- declassified and, and they could put it one, out. And there's one blurred out piece on it, top of the secretary's it, computer. Exactly. There was just some concern that that might, uh, that that might cross the line. So, no, it was, very, it was carefully vetted. Uh, we, we both work for uh, Secretary of State Clinton at various points in our career, and uh, there is that the one person with a sort of different expression than everyone else is, is uh, Hillary Clinton with her hand to her face, and she's said something on a recent trip to Italy that it might have been hay fever, but uh, what was the thought that might have said, well, here's, here's Secretary of Clinton making a different kind of expression than everybody else? You know, I wasn't involved in, in, in choosing the photograph, but I thought that um, uh, it was... Uh, a wonderful uh, photograph and just capturing yeah. uh, everyone's very, very uh, human reactions, the intensity, uh, the concern, the focus, uh, all of those things. And I think different individuals in the photograph, um, you know, uh, had a different, uh, you know, may have, may have had a different focus or different appearance, but I thought it, it, was, it was wonderfully human in that way.
It's, um, it is. And I was reading today uh, comments that David Axelrod made out in Aspen uh, and talking about that weekend because he was in Washington and was no longer in a position as being a White House staffer, so and therefore not privy to any of this going on. Instead, he was doing a job that I was... I lended a hand in occasionally, which was writing jokes for the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Mm. And uh, that was an ironic weekend, wasn't it? Because he, President Obama, on that Saturday evening, and I don't know if you and Evan were there. He yeah, we got, were. He got up on the podium and he started making jokes. And I'll quote him here. He said, uh, Donald Trump is here tonight. Now I know he's taken some flack lately, but no one is prouder to put his birth certificate to rest than the Donald. Now we can get to focusing on the issues that matter, like... Did we fake the moon landing? And what happened at Roswell? And where are Biggie and Tupac? I mean, there's an irony there that uh, what is that while he's making a joke about Donald Trump, the very real version of those same elusive questions are playing out at the Situation Room at that very moment, and in Pakistan and uh, Afghanistan. You, you you can't make this stuff up. It was it was surreal for those of us who knew what was happening, what was going down, what was going to happen the next day. To be at that dinner uh, and to watch the president, uh, remarkably uh, cool, calm, collected, uh, as always. Um, two things that are that are that stand out that are funny. One, um, after the Bin Laden operation, I, I got an email from a very nice woman I was sitting next to at dinner saying, "I'm never going to play poker with you." <laughs> um, although, as you know, Josh, uh, that uh, she's probably wrong about she, that. She should she play should poker, play poker with, with you and me. bet hard. Exactly. Um, and second, I think you're talking about ironies. Um, what was on one of the networks uh, just as they had to break in to uh, talk about what had just happened, the the, uh, the Bin Laden takedown? Celebrity Apprentice, the uh, the Trump show. <laughs> That's right. And it, uh, it preempted Celebrity Apprentice, the final episode. That's right. Um, so uh, obviously an incredibly active spring, May 1st, uh, the most active for you probably. But as you said... Every day brings a different challenge in every time zone around the world. Uh, where did it start for Tony Blinken? I, I, the, when you go to the Harvard Crimson, there is a writer profile online for one A.J. Blinken uh, outlining all of his writings from 1983, but the damn thing won't open. And I was just wondering if former CIA director Leon Panetta had anything to do with that. Yeah, I thank Leon for that every day. God forbid anyone should have access to those writings. Uh, in fact, um, I started on my school newspaper. That's, uh, that's where I started writing. That's where I started getting involved uh, in political issues. Uh, spent far too much time on the paper, probably not enough time in the library, but it was an amazing experience. Uh, I met uh, wonderful people and uh, learned how to write. And uh, where did you take that out of college? You know, right after college, I thought I'd become a journalist. And so I came to Washington for the first time. This is back in uh, 1984, 1985, and worked uh, for a little over a year as a reporter at a magazine, The New Republic. And uh, did that and uh, then decided uh, it would probably be a good idea to go back and get some more education, went back to grad school. But that was, that was the original, original path. It was writing, it was journalism, uh, and it was Washington pretty early on. You know, we, were, were you in the White House for all eight years from beginning to end? Um, you know, I started uh, the first year of the Clinton administration. Um, I wound up at the State Department. And then I got pulled over to the White House, uh, and uh, we got reunited in the summer of uh, 1994. So I was there from the summer of 94 right till the end, till we turned out the uh, the lights and handed over the keys to um, uh, to the Bush administration. We are the children of your sacrifice. That's right. 
What, uh, tell me about some of the things that you that are so memorable from the the eight years and turning out the lights. I mean, Tony Blinken was, and we're talking to Tony Blinken, De- uh, National Security Advisor to Vice President Biden, here on Polyoptics on POTUS Channel One Twenty Four on Sirius XM. So so glad to have you with us. But describe your your path through the Clinton administration. You know, I came over to the White House in the summer of 94 to be a foreign policy speechwriter, and I was pulled over by um, an incredible talent, a guy named Bob Borston, who was the chief uh, foreign policy speechwriter. We'd known each other from college days, and he pulled me into that. And, you know, when you think back, uh, there's so many uh, moments that stand out, and probably the first moment that stands out is the very first day, and it was that late summer of, of, of 94, walking into the Oval Office for the first time, saying hello to President Clinton, getting that that handshake and that uh, that almost all-enveloping uh, look where you think you're the only person in the world and he's totally focused on you, and it still stands out all these years later. And then the first time hearing the president speak words that, uh, that I had helped to write, um, that stands out uh, all these years later. And, you know, through the years working as a speechwriter, um, there were Oval Office addresses, uh, there were making fixes at the very last minute, uh, the last second even, as the president was about to go live uh, on television, sitting behind the desk in the Oval Office uh, to a speech on Bosnia or on Haiti or on some other uh, other crisis. And we did speeches around the world that were trying to advance uh, American interests and American values in China, uh, in Russia, Northern Ireland, uh, all, all of these different places. You know, it's funny, uh, when I was thinking about it, um, there are some moments that really stand out. When the president, you remember this, Josh, so well, when he went to Northern Ireland for the first time as this peace process was just getting off the ground and he was going to make a momentous speech to try and bring people together. We were in London the day before and my pager went off because in those days we had Motorola pagers, not uh, not cell phones. And it was the White House Situation Room and I called in and they said, we have a Mr. Bono on the phone for you? <laughs> and uh, I said, oh, all right, sure, I'll take that. And sure enough, it was uh, Bono from U2. And he said, hey, I hear you're uh, working on the president's speech in Northern Ireland. And I said, yeah, that's right. And he said, well, look, do you mind if I give you a few ideas? And I said, no, I don't mind at all. Um, And, uh, you know, then uh, sometime later, we had the tragedy of the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. And uh, President Clinton was very close to him, as you remember. Yep. And uh, we were all there in the West Wing on the day it happened. Uh, I was at a computer, uh, computer screen trying to type something that the president would say. Uh, going out into the into the rose garden, as I recall, to make a make a statement, and we were trying to find the words and trying to figure out how to how to close the statement uh, that he was making. And I wanted to make some reference to his friendship with Rabin and Evan, Evelyn Lieberman, this um, the deputy chief of staff, extraordinary Ms. woman, Mrs. Lieberman, Mrs. Lieberman. To most of us, she yelled out as a bunch of us were huddled around this keyboard, "Shalom Haver, goodbye friend," uh, in Hebrew. And that took on, uh, that's how the president ended his first remarks, and that took on a, a life of its own uh, in Israel. And then the next day we were off, and, and I had to write the eulogy on short notice, and we were in Air Force One in this almost flying Madame Tussauds Museum because, as you remember, virtually all of the living presidents were on the plane. That's right. Secretaries of State, um, uh, Newt Gingrich, infamously, uh, on that flight. A very and, hairy situation in, in Jerusalem with the Secret Service. And this, it was all of these leaders, exactly. And we were working. I was working on the eulogy, and I got called up to see President Clinton at the front of Air Force One in his in his little office that that you know very well. And, um, and we went over it, and he more or less liked what uh, what we'd done. But there was one line that was bothering him that he that wasn't quite right, and um, he called someone else else up to the front, and he said to me, "You work with him." And that someone up else was Elie Wiesel 
who was on the plane. And so I went back to work on uh, finishing the eulogy with Elie Wiesel. That really stands out, too. It, it helps when, it, among 77 seats, you have some of the most profound thinkers in the world uh, at 35,000 feet. It, it? Was, it, was, it was an amazing experience just being on that plane. Now, uh, you mentioned so many trips. You mentioned Israel, Northern Ireland. Uh, think about that Northern Ireland day. You know, it began with a, a, a visit to the Mackey plant and and, uh, the, right. and the Catholic boy and the Protestant girl. It, it, it uh, then the... Uh, a stop at the Shankill and Falls Road to almost have a impromptu meet and greet with Jerry Adams, and it ended with Van Morrison on the stage outside Belfast City Hall. And you know, so many of these moments, big and small, required the same attention to detail, vetting, writing, and poetry from the National Security uh, Council speechwriting team, which you led. So these trips were not very glamorous for you, were they? You know, they weren't uh, they weren't glamorous in the sense that uh, you usually en- ended up being stuck in a hotel room for the duration of the trip, working, reworking uh, speeches. And, you know, you, you could be in, 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 in Moscow. You might as well be uh, in Cleveland uh, or uh, in, uh, in Detroit or anywhere else in the world. Um, so, yeah, there was, a, despite all of the, the so-called power and glory, you were constantly reminded uh, that this was work. And uh, it wasn't it wasn't about you. I'll give you a couple of quick uh, quick examples. One time we were in Indonesia, and I'd been laboring over this speech for days, and it wasn't even a particularly consequential, consequential speech. It was to the business community in Indonesia, and uh, my boss uh, had given me a hard time uh, in a wonderful way, but a hard time about uh, the speech. It went through five drafts, seven drafts, ten drafts, and finally it was more or less there. And we're in the hotel in Indonesia. And we get called up to the president's suite uh, to go over the speech. But he's in a meeting uh, with some other advisors on some a matter of policy, and we're told to go and stay in, uh, just park ourselves in, in the uh, one of the guest bedrooms in the suite. And so we go in there, and it's uh, myself and Bob Borston, who was then the chief foreign policy speechwriter, and a guy named Don Baer, the communications director. And we're in this very small little room, and we're talking and uh, shooting the breeze and, and, and cracking jokes, and five minutes go by, and 10 minutes go by, and 15 minutes, and the clock's ticking. And we're starting to wonder what's going on. And finally, uh, Don uh, says, uh, gosh, let me, let me check and see what's happening. And uh, he opens the door and peeks into the other room, and they're gone. They just forgot about us. So <laughs> that, uh, that kind of thing happened. And, you know, one time uh, after a State of the Union address that had been a real triumph for President Clinton, late in his, uh, late in his ter- second term, we were back in the White House in the East Room. There was a big party, and the speechwriters are feeling pretty good about it. Uh, he had done an incredible job, and the reviews were in, and they were uh, through the roof. And we were there, and the president came over with uh, some very, uh, a couple of celebrities who were in the room, and he put his arms around uh, Mike Waldman, who was the chief speechwriter, uh, and and me. And uh, he said, "I want to introduce introduce you to these guys." He said to the two celebrities, which will remain nameless. He said, "These are the guys who typed my speech." <laughs> The, the kind of comment that would have been ascribed, that Mark Halpern might have ascribed to the president had he been talking about it <laughs> that day. No comment. Uh, hey, Tony, so they were good years, the Clinton years. Um, they, we, had some, we had some incredibly profound and sad moments like Rabin's death, like the attack on the coal and on our embassies and at Kovar Towers. So it certainly, and we ha- he had the air war in, in Bosnia. Um, but compared to really the last 11 years, uh, quite sanguine. So the Clinton years end, uh, a lot of us flee town, but you stay engaged and, and are at CI- CSIS, but then you go back 
to Congress and work for the Foreign Relations Committee. What it wasn't a path that a lot of your friends and colleagues took at the time. Why did you decide to do it? You know, I after the after the Clinton uh, years, um, I wanted to decompress a little, so I went to one of these so-called think tanks, uh, CSIS, a, a great place, and decompressed a little bit. It's a chance to to write and to think, but I found pretty quickly that I I, I missed being in the mix being in the arena, being in the fray. Uh, and of course, as a Democrat uh, then, after President Bush won election, there wasn't a lot going on, but there was, uh, there was the U.S. Senate. And a small group of us had started to go up and talk to then-Senator Joe Biden, who had become chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, to give him a little advice and, uh, and counsel at his, uh, at his request. And um, I got a call out of the blue. Uh, from uh, the senator uh, looking for um, a staff director, a chief of staff for the Foreign Relations Committee. And I think he had probably gone through five or six people before he got to me. But he got to me, offered me the job, and this is in the spring of 2002. And I jumped at it because it was an opportunity to really get back um, in the mix and uh, to try and have um, um, a voice and some influence in the um, in the policy process, in politics and in government. So given his role uh, on the Foreign Relations Committee, your long tenure on it, and then your service uh, back in the White House as his national security advisor, You've logged a lot of, unfortunately, unredeemable frequent flyer <laughs> miles on military aircraft into Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. Have you figured out how many trips you've taken? You know, we, we, we lose count. I think Iraq, it's probably oh, 21 or 22, and maybe half a dozen to, uh, to Afghanistan and, and Pakistan and, and so forth. And um, Look, it's, a, it's, a, it's an extraordinary thing because we have men and women um, in uh, our military and in our diplomatic missions who are there 24-7, 365 days a year, putting their lives on the line, doing remarkable things uh, for this country. And then some of us who are in government get the opportunity, um, and I would call it the responsibility, to parachute in, to at least take a sounding on the front line, to hear what our folks have to say uh, face-to-face, what they're thinking, what they're seeing, what they're doing. And we have the luxury of doing that for 24 hours or 48 hours or maybe five or six days, and they're there uh, Full time, and so it's a it's a, a privilege to do that. But I think it's a responsibility. If you have any role in the policymaking process, you really have to uh, check in. And and so we would do that. Uh, senator Biden went to Iraq as senator. I think we went at least once a year for, ever since the uh, war started. In fact, we went we went the first time we went together was before the war in December. Uh, we went in uh, to Turkey and we drove seven hours uh, across the border into northern Iraq into the okay. the Kurdish region across these mountains to be with the Kurds to find out what was going on. And from then on, we were in at least once a year and, and, and more often twice. And uh, there were a few, uh, you know, interesting uh, close calls uh, with planes and and, uh, and, and automobiles, but um, it was something we had to do. Now, in uh, in 2008, Tony, you um, you were thrust into the role of uh, being on the vice, president, vice presidential candidate nominee's plane. Uh, in an advisory role, uh, so many trips to Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida, uh, not the kind of hustings that a foreign policy wonk uh, tends to travel too much. Do you, Will you anticipate reprising uh, those trips in the 2012 effort? Uh, you know, Josh, I'm glad I did it. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, I would uh, relish doing it again. Um, it, um, it was like Groundhog Day. Um, and it the, the candidate, uh, in this case, the uh, vice presidential candidate, Joe Biden, you've got to have extraordinary discipline. You're, you're basically giving the same stump speech two or three times a day, day in, day out. And, uh, you know, anyone gets, uh, gets frustrated with that. 
he did a remarkable job. But, you know, you have these, these running jokes. You've got the same um, group of reporters traveling around with you, uh, all you know, great people. You get to know them very well. And you tend to hang out with them listening to the, the stump speech. And they know it by heart. And they're mouthing the words before the candidate actually says them. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, at the end of um, uh, then-Senator Biden's speeches, he, he had a story about how his father uh, would tell him, uh, you know, after uh, some kind of um, bad, uh, bad uh, you know, incident uh, or misfortune in his life, you know, it's, uh, it's about standing up. It's, it's, uh, it's not about getting knocked down. It's about standing up. And he'd end his speeches with yelling out, stand up, stand up, stand up. And there used to be this running a pool among the reporters counting the number of times he would say stand up and betting on how many times he would he would uh, he would say it and uh, occasionally he'd sort of add one after you'd think he'd, you think you thought he'd stopped and you'd hear a reporter yell yeah I got it and that was kind of the atmosphere um, among the uh, the folks covering it but you know the other thing is it's also uh, all kidding aside a wonderful experience because you get to meet so many people from so many different walks of life who are engaged in the system who are engaged in um, in the election who care, um, and you get to hear their stories, uh, you get to hear what's on their minds, you get to hear what's shaping their lives, and you get to remember that uh, here in, in Washington, uh, we're in our bubble, but that's, um, that's not real life uh, for most people. And so in that sense, being on the campaign trail is a wonderful thing, and it's a very good thing to, uh, to have happen before you actually get sent here. Tony, uh, uh, going to let you go. Now no, you have to get back to the White House. Um, it was poignant this week, uh, saying goodbye to... Uh, Secretary Bob Gates, Secretary of Defense, a guy who has served so many administrations uh, and who provided an incredible bridge and national security uh, consistency uh, and, and solidarity from one administration of George W. Bush to Barack Obama. And uh, as I think about your career, uh, turn, all, all eight years at the State Department, at the White House, turning out the lights on President Clinton with President Clinton's administration, uh, serving uh, in what was a very much a, a unified government trying to fight the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan during your time in, on the Hill working with Senator Biden and making that seamless and 24-7 uh, transition to the Obama administration and your service uh, to this very day, uh, even as people begin to depart. Uh, I stand in great admiration of you, and thank you so much for coming on Polyoptics on Sirius XM Channel 124. Josh, thanks for having me. Thank you. History in the making. This is POTUS, Sirius XM 124. Now, as promised at the top of the broadcast, we are pleased to welcome to Polyoptics, Channel 124 on POTUS, Brian Stelter, media reporter for the New York Times. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So uh, it's been quite a, a week here uh, in the media world. I, I saw you reporting one day on the demi- or the quick sale of MySpace. Yeah. And uh, you told me also that you were going to live blog the last show of Glenn Beck. <laughs> that's right. Um, we have not only uh, a documentary that stars you and David Carr and your editors at, in the media uh, section of the New York Times. You also reported yesterday yourself. You tweeted that you will be doing your own book on the morning news show business. It's a, it's a new project for me. I am fascinated by morning TV, and I don't think morning TV gets enough attention because we're still, for some reason, told the evening newscasts are the newscast of record. In reality, the morning shows are the only part of TV that's growing, so that's a project for me coming up in the next couple of years. 
Interesting, Brian. Morning News made a lot of news today, uh, this week, didn't it? It did. Uh, Mark Halperin on Morning Joe, the MSNBC morning show, made a comment about President Obama, uh, a disparaging comment about his performance at a press conference, really ricocheted across the web and made Mark Halperin probably more famous than he's ever been, but, but in the worst way possible. And, you know, I know Mark. I've known him since 1992, uh, producer following President Clinton. Uh, for ABC News, became ABC News political director, uh, has a, has the page, developed the note for ABC News, has the innovative, page, yeah, yeah. Uh, incredibly innovative, and manages the the information that he puts out so carefully. What do you think happened this morning? It seemed like he was being goaded into saying something controversial by the hosts of the show. They were making comments about whether the seven second delay. Uh, for the show still works, and whether they could, whether it would be would it be working if he said something inappropriate, and sure enough, it didn't work. And Joe Scarborough reprimanded the producer later for not bleeping out the comment. You know, of course, there are no actual standards on cable news in terms of legal reasons why you can't say certain words. But I think Mark Halperin immediately realized to be uh, disparaging to the president on television like that is not smart for a journalist like him, especially not for a journalist like him who's writing a book about the 2012 elections. And so he quickly, quickly, quickly apologized. You know, uh, we were talking right before we went on air about how those like you, to a certain extent like me, who are so uh, buried by media from morning to night, sometimes we go to sleep watching, even on our DVRs at 1 a.m., replays of Jon Stewart's Daily Show, which (laughs) so creatively uses bleeped out words and green screen, but it's taped and it's edited and it's careful. And I I was listening this morning as I drove uh, south to Philadelphia to satellite radio, XM Sirius, and (laughs) I I heard that exchange and I I thought, they're trying to do a little Jon Stewart on Morning Joe. Hmm. And, And I think that's true on Morning Joe and other morning shows on cable. There's oftentimes a reward for controversial comments and and sometimes even for objectionable comments. Once in a while it crosses the line. Probably it's happening a little more often if you think about it. Not just on morning shows, but also on shows like Glenn Beck's show, uh, wrapping up this week on Fox. Uh, Ed Schultz at MSNBC was uh, in hot water a month ago for comments he made on his radio show, but he had to take a week off of his TV show as a result as well. All of these debates we're having on television and radio all the time may ratchet up the rhetoric to a point where people cross the line more often than they otherwise would. It's interesting. You are doing a... a, Is your book going to be focused mostly on the main network's morning broadcasts or the whole gamut of early morning TV programs? You know, I'm mostly interested... Well, I shouldn't say mostly. I'm most interested in Today's Show versus Good Morning America because that clash has been going on for years and it's happening now with renewed vigor. But the reality is that there's 10 or 12 or 15 different shows all vying for our attention in the morning. So I want to make sure I look at that entire pie. You can't look at television now as a race between two or three channels. It's a race between two or three hundred channels. And, and, you know, in a big way, two or three dozen channels. So I'm hoping to look at the broad spectrum of morning TV. And I'm a dedicated morning Joe watcher because I I have thought that the discourse is pretty high-minded and civilized. Yeah, yeah. The people who come on are given extended periods to talk, and they are the, the the very literate and most informed people in Washington often. And it seemed to me an outgrowth of what preceded Joe and Mika's show on MSNBC, which was the I'm a Simulcast. 
and Imus had his own issues, but what he did allow is a 25-minute conversation with a thoughtful newsmaker that that Scarborough's show is sort of unique in the morning hours of allowing. It definitely is, and it's something that other morning shows are jealous of, that they are envious of, that they wish they could recreate, but oftentimes feel hemmed in by the format, which uh, does seem to, on other shows, require more fluff and less substance. Morning Joe is also special because it gets together a certain class of people, a certain establishment group of people that talk in the green rooms, that talk during the commercial breaks, that really have an exchange of ideas going on. And, and it's reflected on TV, but it's, it's also become a sort of meeting place for a certain uh, uh, Washington to New York uh, group. And uh, it's important for that reason, too, because it, it is a, a thought leadership program. Yeah, and from 6 to 9 a.m. in the morning, it is almost a replication of the dinner table conversations they all have at L'Oreal Plaza <laughs> right. in Washington, D.C. Right. And maybe one of those words that Mark might use over chips and salsa is a word that actually got in the air, unfortunately. That's right. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. So, Brian, uh, you were at Towson University, uh, and sometimes the press about your beginning with TV Newser uh, almost envisions that you suddenly materialized in 2006, <laughs> that you came from nowhere. But if my background, some of my friends' backgrounds, is anything like yours, it begins somewhere in childhood with a fascination of what the news business is all about. It does. It, I date it back to when I was five, and my grandfather bought me my first, well, bought my family our first computer. Because having that computer in the house at such a young age made me really curious about computing and also about communication. The internet was in its infancy, but the World Wide Web was starting up by age eight or nine. At least I was on by age nine. Learning how to create web pages at a young age was really critical because it showed me that anyone could be a publisher. And that's really, I think, the, the genesis of, of all the young people in their teens and 20s and early 30s who have been able to make a name for themselves online. It's that we can all be publishers now. And if we learn how to use it in a responsible and effective way, that's incredibly powerful. So I, I did have a blog in college, TV Newser, that was all about television news, and the Times hired me when I graduated to keep blogging. But back in um, in high school and middle school, I had web pages about uh, Goosebumps books, about Nintendo games, Xbox games. These things weren't journalism, but they were journalistic. Uh, they were they were early blogs, and it was a matter of just turning my attention to TV news in college that I think gave me a, a great start. But what informed or interested you about TV news is to say that I'm going to do this as opposed to really well, really blowing out the Nintendo idea. <laughs> <laughs> might have actually been more profitable than Nintendo idea. People are obsessed with those games. But I, I, part of me wanted to be on television. Part of me wanted to be a Brian Williams or Matt Lauer or Katie Couric or Diane Sawyer. Uh, part of me was intrigued by that, that role, that, that position. Gradually came to realize I'd be better at covering it than being on television. The other piece of why I was so interested in it, in it though, was because I felt like cable news was undercovered in just the same way that morning TV is undercovered, especially in 2004 and 2005 when Fox News was really becoming a dominant player in American political discourse and at a time when MSNBC was just starting to figure out its liberal identity. For a while, MSNBC was the only place in this country where any person in the media was speaking out against the wars and against the Bush administration. So I was I was fascinated by cable news, and I thought it wasn't getting enough attention. And again, thanks to the fact that anyone can be a publisher, I was able to step in and, and fill a little bit of that void. So 
you you create the page, and I remember in my capacity as a uninvolved person, sometimes friends at the networks would suggest, "Why don't you anonymous tip to TV Newser?" I hope you did. I sure I'm, I'm sure I did, and I <laughs> don't remember exactly what I tipped about. But what when was the moment with you at Towson University that you had created what I think of the digital equivalent of chum, meaning that shark bait, it, which is <laughs> which was that white box for anonymous the tips. anonymous tip box. That, that you were actually going to bring in some fish because of this. I appreciate you noticing that box because I think that was the single most important thing I did at TV Newser. I'm, I'm happy to have seen it trickle over to other sites since then. Just having a little white box that says anonymous tips allows people to know that you're interested in what they're saying. It's the, until Twitter, the easiest way to communicate. Um, just type in a sentence, hit hit send, and, and I would read everything that came in. Some of it was actual tip, uh, you know, uh, gossip and information from the networks, but most of it was people's feedback, people's opinions, people's complaints, people's compliments. It was a really, really easy way to, to respond. And I think by having that box up there in the corner of the site, and I think I added it after only two months, having that box up there sent a message that I wanted to hear from people. Oftentimes, I think websites have to do a better job of telling people we want to listen. Not only are we listening, but we want to listen. Uh, and Twitter has been really effective in that way as well. I have my cell phone number on my Twitter page, and no one ever actually calls it. But it sends a signal that I'm there to listen. <laughs> Except me when I thought you might be late for the show. <laughs> that, 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 that is true. Once, <laughs> and once a week, I actually, I should say, once a week, I do get a legitimate call uh, from a PR person or, or something like that. But I, doesn't, I don't get the weird calls I thought I would. I thought I would get strange calls every day from readers, and I don't. But it does send a signal that I'm interested. To extend the fishing, more, fishing metaphor a little further back at Towson, uh, you know, sometimes you get the legal fish and things that are allowed to be caught and should be caught, and <laughs> sometimes things get in your net that probably shouldn't be there. You're you're a junior, senior, sophomore in college. What gives you the maturity and understanding to say, "This is dynamite in my hands, and my putting it up could be could jeopardize someone's career, someone's job," and gives you the the right kind of journalistic filter that often just comes with years and years of experience. Probably wanting to be taken seriously by my peers and wanting to be taken seriously by the television industry had a big role in what I would and would not post. The desire for credibility, in other words, was a big factor when I was processing something and thinking about whether I should post it and how I should post it. That said, I did make mistakes. There, there are rumors and innuendo I posted back in those days that I, I, I regret posting now. And... I like to think that if I hadn't done it, others would. That's a sort of a way to uh, somehow make it more okay. But the reality is that I think a lot of young people, a lot of young journalists, a lot of young columnists and pundits, they make mistakes when they're setting out. And you have to hope they make them on a slightly smaller scale than, uh, than that at a place they'll work later. I think most of the time that's true. That's a traditional role of a college newspaper or a high school newspaper. It's a trial and error period. It's a testing ground for, for, uh, for people to practice. I suppose now with blogs, the area that we have to practice is much more open and much easier to access. And with that comes responsibility of the reader to be skeptical. But not also not just to be skeptical. I think it goes back to the anonymous tip box. Giving feedback when the site screws up is also critical. There were a couple of times where I would post something, uh, you know, things I, I can't remember exactly what they were, but I think they were probably innuendo about anchors or, or producers, things that I regretted later. And I heard from people almost immediately, heard from readers almost immediately, who objected to what I had posted. That sort of feedback's really critical. I actually, it happened uh, this week with the Mark Halpern story. 
the way I had initially described the comment he made, I called it a slur. And people on Twitter reacted saying, that implies it was racial, you should change the word. And we did change the word. We, we were able to listen to that feedback, and I think our story was better for it. What's it like to have a immediate sounding board of 65,000 people? <laughs> I'm referring to your Twitter following. I, I think it's much... Uh, it's a tool for good much more than it's a tool for, for negative comments or negative, uh, you know, uh, behavior. It, yes, it can sometimes be overwhelming and be tiring, but it's so powerful to, to be able to get instant feedback from people like that as a tool for fact-checking and as a tool for you know, gut, gut checks as well. Uh, there was a time I was trying to think of, sounds kind of funny, but I couldn't find the answer on, on Wikipedia. I was trying to find how many TV shows on network television that it lasted for more than a decade. I couldn't find it on Wikipedia, so I asked the audience on Twitter. After two minutes, they had thought of three shows I hadn't thought of yet. And after hearing from 100 people, I realized, you know, I'm pretty sure we've got all of them at this point. We figured them all out. That's really helpful. A person uh, you've developed a long relationship with is a person who I've known since the middle of the Clinton years when he covered the White House as the chief NBC News White House correspondent, who's now the anchor of the NBC Nightly News, Brian Williams. And uh, as as we have transitions in the anchor chairs at CBS and ABC uh, within the last year, and Brian has a has a connection back to taking over for Tom Brokaw, what are we seeing in terms of the um, the role of the anchor person, and and do we have something special in Brian that uh, an audience is beginning to lose because of the decline of the evening news audience? Well, I noticed in the second quarter the ratings for the evening news actually improved. We've had them generally declining for 25 to 30 years, but there was an uptick in the second quarter, part of it because there was so much bad news around the world. But I'd like to think that if the audience uh, hasn't just stabilized, it, it may have also um, begun to pick up. You know, maybe we're going to see at least a, a stable audience for the evening news going forward from people that would rather have all their news distilled for half an hour. You know, this might be, I might be a little bit overstating this trend, but I get the sense from talking to people about this film, there's a, there's a counterweight to the idea of instant access to information, uh, counterweight to the idea of raw information, whether or not we know it's totally true. I get the sense that more and more people would prefer a distilled and fully vetted version of the news. I don't know if they're directly reacting to what the Internet's given us in the last two decades, but they may be. Well, that's that's one of the issues that, frankly, I have with the subject of your book, which is um, the package uh, and then the, the, the chat in the morning of, of the two networks can be so vapid uh, and yeah. so uninformative yeah. or, or so focused on things that are so small. News and quote marks. Compared to what's really going on in the world that... You know, you you're happy to have uh, XM Sirius and be able to go to uh, to the BBC and to hear substance of what's going on in the world rather than the latest uh, uh, testimony at a trial of one person. There's been an obsession over one particular trial lately, the Casey Anthony trial yep. in Florida, and it's hard to defend the amount of attention that it's received. But there's always been a place in this news ecosystem for obsessions over relatively small stories. I don't see that going away, but I do hope that there remain alternatives. In this case, we talked about Morning Joe as an alternative. I think PBS, another alternative, Frontline, and to some extent, the evening newscasts. As you were saying, those good old-fashioned 30-minute summaries of the world, they generally won't give over too much time to any one thing. 
Um, it's especially good to look at the landscape now and think, well, if the Today Show, which is owned by Comcast, does spend too much time on one particular story, Comcast also produces Squawk Box for business news and Morning Joe for political news, and it's nice to have that variety. Um, you're listening to Polyoptics on XM Series Channel 124, and we're talking with Brian Stelter, media reporter for the New York Times. And Brian Stelter, star of the this summer's Bafo documentary, Page mm-hmm. One, a year inside the New York Times. You were new to the media desk, uh, a new a new reporter in your early 20s, and it was a year, 2009 and 2010, in which a longtime reader of the Times, like myself, would look at the A section, the business section, pages of the paper that would have been filled with full-page ads for airlines or computers or cell phones, and the most that I could find was... Uh, gold pieces or safes or the occasional uh, bulk wine purchase, and it was a, a near-death experience. Well, we all need our bulk wine. <laughs> we do, for our, our burgeoning wine cellars. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but what permits uh, uh, the Sulzbergers and your managing editor, Bill Keller, and your editor to say, uh, walk in here and follow <laughs> us at a moment when our, our very existence is going to be questioned? There were times I thought they had made a huge mistake. Um, deeply, though, you kind of if we get deep down inside of, of any request for an interview, as a journalist, you're, you're somewhat hypocritical if you say no, given that you spend your days begging for access to people and, and institutions. And I think from our point of view, uh, we saw a filmmaker who wanted to approach this journalistically. He wanted to make a film through the same journalistic prisms that we do, of fairness and accuracy and storytelling uh, and that made it easier to allow him in we knew for example that he wouldn't burn our sources you know he we had no real control over what he was going to produce we had no editorial say in it but we did have an understanding that uh, you know that he wouldn't go and uh, print our sources names or, or show them on screen uh, so we were able to establish some trust over time with him and I think that's what that's what allowed it to happen um, as as you watch the film, the Brian Stelter depicted on on screen is a one who sort of transforms physically a little bit during <laughs> during the course of the the shooting. What was going on in your life at the time? And and it's a euphemism for a euphemism for for uh, was fat and lost weight. Uh, yeah, I, I lost about ninety pounds during the filming. Rather coincidentally, I think about five months into the filming, I, I was rejected by a girl and decided overnight just to to lose the weight. Um, not planning on losing this much weight, but I, I sort of I was at 275 pounds, and and uh, looking back at that, I, I realize now I had a lot to lose. I lost about 90 pounds, um, and I'm holding steady there. And to the filmmaker's credit, he explains it at the end because <laughs> there were scenes toward the end of the film where I was much skinnier, and they were a little bit confusing to some some early viewers of the film. So he explains at the end that I had a Twitter feed where I posted everything I ate. And it ends up sort of being a funny endorsement of Twitter. In the film, we talk about Twitter, and we talk about the pros and cons of Twitter. And there at the end, here I am saying, uh, thanks to my Twitter diet, I lost weight. Um, the film is, uh, is page one, uh, a year in the life of the New York Times. Uh, it's, it's open uh, in theaters nationwide now. It stars uh, David Carr and Brian Stelter. Um, and as we talk about as you look at the film, and I, we sit across from the, ta- the table from each other now, 
uh, you may be tweeting as we speak. <laughs> and you've talked about the physical transformation, the weight loss you went through during a year of filming. Uh, how, how do you manage your day with multiple tweets, multiple decoders, managing a st- uh, filing a, a story for the printed paper, exercise, and <laughs> managing a life? How does it all, I mean, what, where do you sleep? And uh, the how most does important end? thing is to keep your iPhone charged. <laughs> ABC always be charging. Uh, I think a lot of journalists have to subscribe to that principle now. Um, I find that the interplay between the web and print at the Times works pretty well. Stories generally start on Twitter. You post, you know, one sentence about them. You keep them going on a bl- in a blog post format. You write the beginning on a blog post. You get it online. And you, you enhance and you improve and you upgrade that story. And eventually a version of that story gets into the paper the next day. The format really sort of flows pretty well. What you have to guard against is not getting distracted by the daily stories and forgetting about the bigger, more in-depth piece, more in-depth stories that actually end up being more helpful to the reader oftentimes, you know. For all the 800-word stories about MySpace that are out there, uh, this week sold at a basically a fire sell price to an to a ad company. The best story I think we wrote about MySpace was a front-page story by my colleague Tim Marengo in January that stepped way back and just asked a very simple question. Where did MySpace go wrong? That, at the end of the day, was probably more helpful to readers than any of our short stories about the sale or my final story this week about it, you know, leaving News Corporation. So I, I think we have to make sure, as we're tweeting and blogging all day, and that works pretty well, that we still take a deep breath, step back, and work on those larger stories. And, and thankfully, at the times, it's valued to the point where uh, editors watch out for that. They remind you to take that time to step back, and they, they keep perspective on these things. Well, to get a sense of stepping back and looking at the larger stories, uh, people should head out to the multiplex and see page one, A Year in the Life of the New York Times. Brian Stelter, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for another edition of Polyoptics on Sirius XM Channel 124 on POTUS, Politics of the United States. It's July 4th weekend. I hope wherever you are, you're having fun, and hopefully you are taking just a moment sometime between the fireworks and the barbecues and the corn and the cob to think about that incredibly iconic image that we have, that parchment that sits in the National Archives in Washington that is reproduced in so many places uh, on parchment paper in kids rooms online and that's the Declaration of Independence. It stands for so much and its visual stands for so much. 230 years later we think back to that piece of parchment and it represents everything that this country is all about. For Adam Belmar, I'm Josh King. Have a very wonderful 4th of July Independence Weekend.